This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for July 22nd, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, it's been a while since we've heard any encouraging news about specific therapies for COVID-19. We had heard about remdesivir, an antiviral that decreases the severity of the disease, but we're still waiting for the final results of a trial to determine whether it can actually decrease the death rate. But last week, in the journal, we published a study of a second agent, one that does seem to have an impact on survival. So what was that agent and what did we learn? Well, before we get to the specifics of this study, Steve, just want to make a couple of points. First, while it's true that specific therapies have come along slowly, many physicians and hospitals have become much more experienced with taking care of patients and the supportive sorts of therapies that are required to care for some of the very ill COVID-19 patients. It's a little difficult to tell what impact this is having on death rate, especially since more recently the demographics of infection have changed with more younger patients getting infected. But it does seem that it might be making a difference. And second, this study we published using the corticosteroid dexamethasone has a very different mechanism of action from the previous agent, remdesivir, that we published on. This one inhibits most multiple host inflammatory pathways. It's not an antiviral at all, but in fact, it modulates the host response. And it wasn't so clear if that was going to be a help or a hindrance. Prior to this study, we were certainly concerned that dexamethasone might inhibit some of the pathways required to control viral replication and therefore increase the amount of viral replication, or it might block the inflammatory pathways that are required to proceed to ARDS, which is the major cause of death in COVID-19. So it seems that the results were then enabled by the way the study was designed? I think that's definitely true, Steve. This study called Recovery was designed to test multiple interventions. In in the middle of the epidemic, the researchers put together a study that had several arms so they could test several interventions at once. There was a single large control arm consisting of patients who got the usual care, standard of care, but no other specific interventions, and then several arms that tested putative therapies. In preprints, the investigators have already reported one group that received hydroxychloroquine and did not get any benefit from therapy. Uh, of course, the data about hydroxychloroquine have only appeared in a preprint and have not yet been peer-reviewed. So we will have to see what those data look like once published. So we're already starting to learn many things from this trial. Of course, it's very difficult to put together a trial like this. This is a very large trial put together very rapidly. And in the midst of it, there were changes in the thinking about treatment, and therefore unanticipated changes in the protocols. And in addition, because this is a very important topic, there was a lot of public interest and a lot of interest from regulatory authorities who mandated several looks at the data that were unplanned and that influenced the analysis of the results. But it's very impressive, nevertheless, that the investigators were able to put together a large randomized controlled trial so quickly. So Eric, it is quite remarkable. I mean, it's a simple trial, but it's really not so simple. You know, in the way they designed it, they needed to be quick out of the starting gate to have a chance to respond to the rapid spread of SARS-CoV-2 when they began several months ago. 
at that time, the biology of this infection wasn't well understood in terms of the thrombosis and some of the other complications. And the epidemiology was still being learned. Yet they designed a trial that could launch very quickly, have simple or easy data collection, could be done across the country, has an endpoint that we care about mortality, but loses a lot of the granularity of care. But these are the trade-offs that they chose to do in order to launch a trial quickly to be able to see if a series of interventions, because it's a multi-arm trial, despite its simplicity, which is what I find so beautiful about it. It is simple because they could do it quickly, but it's not so simple in terms of how they utilized the control group, how they had multiple arms, and how they chose to collect which data pieces that could be reliably collected in the way in which they did the study, which was across the country at a large number of medical centers. So it's quite remarkable. And I think that uh, we all have a lot to learn from how they did this and a lot to learn about how it could be done better. But fundamentally, outcomes like mortality are very credible, even when collected in such a rapid hodgepodge is too loose, but sort of a rapid, diverse way across many medical centers that are not professional clinical study sites. So it's quite remarkable. So you say there were multiple arms. How did the dexamethasone arm work? So this study was done in hospitalized patients who were randomized either to usual care, which is the standard supportive therapy for disease, and which served as a control for every one of the other arms, or dexamethasone. There were more than 2,000 patients who got dexamethasone and more than 4,000 in the usual care group that served as a control. The treatment in this study was open label so that both the patients and their physicians knew which treatment they were receiving. All the patients received six milligrams of dexamethasone a day for 10 days or until they were discharged from the hospital. And they did exclude several patients who were considered to be poor candidates for dexamethasone. Because remember, this is an open label study so that some patients who, for example, were diabetic uh, might have been excluded because of concerns about their blood sugar control. The primary endpoint was death by 28 days, but there were several other clinical outcomes that the investigators looked at. And in addition, they looked at the relationship between characteristics at randomization, including, importantly, the level of respiratory support that they were getting and the eventual outcome. The patients who were treated looked pretty representative of hospitalized COVID-19 patients in general. They were predominantly older and they were predominantly male. Patients in the treatment group received dexamethasone for a median of a week. It was shortened in some patients either because they left the hospital or because of death. And at the end, at 28 days, the mortality in the usual care group, the control group, was 25.7%, while in the treated group, it was 22.9%. So there was a survival advantage for the treated group. Those who were receiving some sort of support, including those on ventilators and those on supplemental oxygen, had a greater benefit than those who were not receiving oxygen, who seemed to derive less benefit. In fact, they may have done a little bit worse. Similarly, those who had a longer duration of symptoms had more benefit than those who were recently diagnosed. So altogether, it looks like dexamethasone is a useful treatment in that it prevents death particularly in those who have more advanced disease. It's not clear, though, that it should be used in patients with less severe illness. 
So you've suggested that dexamethasone may be useful in more advanced disease. Generally, how is the agent likely to fit into the treatment of patients altogether? This study has influenced practice very rapidly. It already is an important component of many treatment guidelines. And for the most part, those vary, but for the most part, this is a therapy that's being reserved for people who require oxygen or who are already on ventilators. And that's based on the subgroup analysis from this study. It's very reassuring to have something to do for these patients because they're the patients with the poorest outcomes. I think we're going to have to see still if other people might benefit. But I want to go back to what I said earlier, which is there are good reasons to think that early infection may not be the right place to use these drugs. And Eric, when you say early infection, are you referring to time since infection or how severe the illness is? That's a good question, Lindsay. I think we use severity as something of a proxy for the time after infection uh, because we don't usually know when infection occurred, although sometimes we can tell when symptoms occurred. As you know, the infection can follow different time courses. There are some people who present and develop severe illness rather rapidly after their initial presentation, but many don't develop the more severe symptoms until well into the course of disease. Because I look at it less as to the time since infection, since many, if not most, who get infected may not even get sick and see it more as related to severity of illness, which in some cases absolutely is correlated with duration of illness. But you know, these data suggest that those who have significant lung injury may benefit from uh, therapies targeted at the inflammation that is a component of the lung injury. Well, the reason I stress time, Lindsay, is I completely agree with where the indications for this drug use probably lie. They're for people with more severe lung damage. The reason I stress time, it has to do with the biology underlying infection. I think that we can think about the disease as often being the production of high degrees of viral replication followed in some interval by damage. And if you were able to choose when to use a drug like dexamethasone, you would want to choose it more in the damage phase than in the viral replication phase because the host inflammatory mechanisms might help control the amount of viral replication. In practice, we don't really know what those are. And so what we have to look at is someone who's sick already. And once they're sick and tissue damage is occurring, that does, I agree with you, appear to be the time to use the drug. But I think this speaks to potential side effects, if one can call loss of viral control a side effect, that often go unmeasured in these kinds of studies and may be a deleterious effect that we don't know how to consider. And the use of corticosteroids in other viral infections, such as influenza, has had quite a checkered history. And I think we do need to think about the pathogenesis, the degree of inflammation that's causing injury, and also the potential for side effects, not only directly from corticosteroids, such as AVN or loss of glucose control, but also in terms of pathogen replication and the implications there. And so using DEX 
later in the course of illness, when perhaps there isn't viral replication and there's inflammatory injury, makes a lot of sense and mitigates that concern. But it's a concern that's not been measured carefully, and so we don't quite know how to frame it in terms of the potential risks. And that gets back to the challenge of a simple study. I think they did the study in a way that was doable under the circumstance, but it leaves many more questions that need to be defined to better understand the risk-benefit ratio. It's interesting because in previous podcasts, Lindsay, we've suggested that studies that are examining direct-acting antiviral drugs, which putatively inhibit viral replication directly, that it's very important to measure viral loads. And in this study, that wasn't done, as you're suggesting. And here, there's kind of the opposite concern, that viral loads might rise or may fail to fall upon treatment with dexamethasone. Part of the problem, of course, is not only, as you suggested, that this was a multi-center study and rapidly put together, and of course, testing is somewhat limited, and so it's not easy to do that serial testing, but there's also a biological issue with all these viral load measurements, which is our measurement of viral load in the respiratory tract is pretty crude, the way that we're sampling with swabs. We're accustomed to viremia, where you um, infections where it's easy to measure the amount of virus in blood, and we can easily tell whether or not there's a response to therapy, as in, for example, with anti-HIV drugs. It's much more difficult with a respiratory virus like this to accurately and reproducibly measure the amount of virus that's being shed. And the meaning of the viral load in the respiratory tract is also tricky, you know, and how well that correlates with virus that's culturable. Um, it's hard to call a virus alive, but virus that is culturable as opposed to nucleic acid being present. We like to think there's a good correlation there. There probably is, but as you point out, the sampling matrix in the blood is more homogeneous while the sampling matrix in the oropharynx or nasopharynx is intrinsically uneven. And in studies that have looked at viral culture rather than RNA uh, levels, we have seen discrepancies. Certainly viral culture is less sensitive than measuring RNA. However, there have been several studies that suggest something of a split between the amount of virus you can measure and the amount of RNA you can measure And that's extremely important, not just for the individual patient, but of course for their transmissibility, so the risks they pose to others. So I think that what's very tempting from the data that's emerging, Eric, is early on, one is thinking about viral replication and antivirals. And later in the course of illness, one is thinking about aberrant inflammation. That has led to lots of discussion and potential studies looking at sequencing different types of agents in that way. That's unproven, but attractive intellectually. And these data add to that attraction as pathogenesis and therefore therapeutic intervention. So what do the results of this study mean for other host-directed therapeutic approaches? On one hand, I think this suggests that host-directed therapeutic approaches might have a substantial impact on disease. So I think it's very encouraging that we can do something to intervene and make a difference in the outcome we really care about, death. And so I think it means that these other therapeutic approaches might make a difference. A lot of them are directed against inflammation in just the way that dexamethasone is, 
but a lot of these agents are much more specific by inhibiting specific cytokines, for example, or inflammatory signaling pathways that might make a difference. It's a little bit speculative. We know that many cytokine levels are increased, for example, and we don't know about cause and effect in that case. We don't know if blocking them is going to have a positive effect or that they're up as an appropriate response to the virus and are actually helping. So I think there's no way of knowing if these are going to work or which one is more likely to work than any other. I think one important point, though, is that dexamethasone is basically free. It's widely available. And most of these other agents are going to be very expensive. They may avoid some of the side effects of dexamethasone, some of the ones that Lindsay mentioned before. But of course, none of these drugs are entirely safe. So I think they'll have to prove that they're superior to dexamethasone in order to be actually useful in the clinic. Um, So I think that there's one other important aspect of this, and it gets back to cost. We have talked about a lot of very expensive therapies. They're not only expensive, but they have limited availability, even in the US, and are essentially untouchable in many parts of the world, drugs like remdesivir. Dexamethasone is something that anyone can use in any country, anywhere. So this, I think, really changes the thinking about the global response to COVID-19 and not just what we do in the US and Europe. From my perspective, I agree the global accessibility of dexamethasone is very attractive. And therefore, it's not uh, manufacturing restricted or economy restricted. Another remarkable element that I'm struck by, you know, as we've just discussed, there's so much more to learn. I think it is very impressive that this study was able to be done so quickly with so much uncertainty so much uh, lack of understanding of the biology and the complications of this infection, and that they were able to develop knowledge that's informative, you know, in the middle of a pandemic. I think that's quite remarkable. I think as we've discussed, and as I'm sure will be discussed across our communities, there's so much more we want to know. There's so much that we wish this study had done. However, It is terrific that it was able to be done and add knowledge to how we can care for our patients. And I think that's quite remarkable. Yeah, let me add to that, Lindsay. I absolutely agree. All of the studies we've seen that have been performed rapidly during the outbreak have imperfections. And some of those imperfections in the recovery trial were outlined in an editorial we published by uh, Sharon Lees Normont. And they're real. And I think that we should view any of these studies in the context of the potential limitations that might change our interpretation of the results. But I still have to come down on the side of it's very impressive to get these sorts of studies done under the circumstances of this outbreak. And they're what we have. And so we need to take what we can from them and celebrate the people who do them. I didn't mean to imply that they were perfect. There are substantial limitations. There are many more questions than answers. But as someone who does clinical research, it is incredibly difficult to do. And to be able to do it rapidly under these circumstances, like you, I am very grateful to have some data to guide my practice than no data, albeit the data 
have so many questions around them, but that's the nature of science and it's the nature of a new disease and it's the nature of caring for patients in complex circumstances. So I'm with you on appreciating the data, including their limitations. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.